Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I'm so thankful that you do take the time to listen to um, these podcasts. Hopefully they've been uh, very beneficial to you. They've helped you in your Christian growth and issues of theology and and worship and your relationship with Christ. I've been very, very busy lately with a lot of things going on in the life of the church. Uh, The end of the year, school year's winding down. We're remodeling our kitchen, putting in new cabinets and countertops, and so um, haven't had a lot of time to come in and just record a standalone podcast, uh, and so I, I do have finally starting to have a little bit more time, and so um, I want to, on this podcast today, interact with Dr. David Allen's book on the atonement called The Extent of the Atonement. Um, as you know, I've dealt with David Allen and other traditional Southern Baptists in past podcasts, but this is a very thick book, and I would recommend you getting the book if you can afford it. Um, I did not read all of it because it deals with a lot of historical information, which was good. Uh, the good thing about the book was it really did give a lot of historical background, and um, I think it was fairly written. Uh, all you really need to do is go to his last chapter where he gives a lot of his conclusions and summaries and things like that. But I did read a lot of the, of the book and especially his interaction with John Owen, James White and others. Uh, and what I want to do is it's just on this podcast interact with some of the assertions, uh, some of the arguments that Dr. David Allen has made in his book. Obviously, this is a book against particular redemption or limited atonement. And so he is arguing for a universal atonement. And he is a very fine Southern Baptist leader. He's a professor of preaching at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. Um, I think Dr. Allen is a good preacher, and I don't have anything against him personally at all. So my intent in doing this is to interact with his ideas, with his assertions, and just to show and distinguish the differences between a Reformed Calvinistic understanding of the extent and intent of the atonement and um, a traditional Southern Baptist or a non-Calvinistic. And I think the title of his book does show a little bit of a, a different starting point. Uh, we as Calvinists don't necessarily start with the extent of the atonement. We start with the intent of the atonement. What was God's intention in sending Christ to die on the cross? Then secondly, the question becomes, okay, then for whom did Christ die. And so uh, the extent, the intent, all of that is, is dealt with in his book. But what, what I want to deal with is, and this is just the way I understood his argumentation, um, there's six major assertions, six major assumptions, six major themes or issues that I'm going to hopefully attempt to address um, in this podcast. And I'll look at the time because we may have to to divide this into two if it goes longer than an hour. I like to keep the podcast no more than an hour uh, because I know by the time it gets to that stage, a lot of you may have stopped listening by then. But let's just start. And um, I'm going to give a lot of quotes from his book, I'll give page numbers as well. In case you have the book, you could go reference those. So um, assertion number one or issue number one, um, he denies unconditional election and argues that God has omnibenevolence for the entire world. So obviously, 
he does not hold to particular election or unconditional election. Uh, let me give you a quote on page 779. Quote, If God determined that Christ died only for the sins of the elect, then it is clear that He loves the elect more and in a drastically different way as compared to the non-elect. And we, we as Calvinists say, yeah, that's what we believe. We do believe that God loves the elect more in a drastically different way than He does the non-elect, in that He unconditionally chose the elect for salvation before the foundation of the world. The non-elect, the reprobate, He did not choose. So obviously there's a discriminating love. There's a discriminating choice in our view. Um, this is the doctrine of unconditional election. Um, and so you, you have to, and, and this is my contention with the whole limited atonement argument. Limited atonement or particular redemption or definite atonement is a natural and logical outflow of unconditional election. Um, if you hold to unconditional election, you almost have to hold to limited atonement. So the, a lot of the arguments that people bring against particular redemption or limited atonement are really aimed at unconditional election. The sense that God has a discriminating or a drastically different way of loving the elect than he does the non-elect. Um, and so, obviously, as Calvinists, we're going to believe in unconditional election. We would say that God does not love the reprobate in hell with the same type of salvific love that he does the elect, because it was God's sovereign choice of who was going to be saved and who was not. And so, by nature of God's sovereign election, He is drastically loving the elect more. Um, page 784, he also makes this statement, quote, Given that love is intrinsic to God's nature, to posit an arbitrary distinction between saving love for the elect and His general, albeit non-saving love for the non-elect, is actually to impugn the character of God as revealed in Scripture. So, if you hold to unconditional election, then that impugns God's character. Because, after all, God has to have the same exact type of love, this omnibenevolence, for every single person. God cannot have a discriminating love. God cannot have a sovereign electing love. Um, he makes the say he says it's arbitrary between the elect and non-elect is to impugn God's character. And so one of the issues that David Allen, I think many traditionalist non-Calvinist Southern Baptists as well as Arminians do, is they they want to elevate God's love above all his other attributes. And they they make this assertion that for God to truly be loving, he must have the same type of love for all people. That's their assertion. If God is going to be truly loving, if He's truly omnibenevolent, then He has to love every single person with the same type of love. He can't be discriminating in His love. He can't have a special love for His elect. God has to have an equal, omnibenevolent love for all people. And so, that's one of the assertions that He's working for. And the biggest issue that He deals with, I think, when, when, when you look at his argumentation, is that fundamentally he denies the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8. Uh, he denies unconditional election. He denies irresistible grace. He denies 
limited atonement. So three of the five points of Calvinism he's already denied. So he's coming in basically with a bias saying unconditional election is not his view as well as irresistible grace. And so a lot of the argumentation that he's using, I think, divides up that golden chain of redemption. And so let me just remind you in in Romans um, 8 where we find the golden chain of redemption, um, that famous passage of Paul where he's speaking about salvation um, in Romans 8. Let's just start in verse 30. Um, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, The golden chain has... The links that can't be broken, it's the same people. The same people are predestined, the same people are called, the same people are justified, the same people are glorified. Uh, there, there is the sovereign election that goes all the way back in eternity past, going all the way forward to glorification um, in our eternal state. And so when you um, break up the golden chain, you're going to have some problems or seepages in your understanding of how God saves sinners from first to last. And so one of the interesting statements that he makes that um, is kind of, I do not want to call it weird. It just struck me a little bit different. I'd never heard this before. But he says, even the elect are under God's wrath until they believe. And, and so basically saying if, if Christ's atonement propitiated God's wrath literally on the cross, then it still wasn't effective until uh, the elect um, are saved because before they're saved, they're still under God's wrath. And he keeps making this, this argument. And, and I keep saying if you understand the golden chain of redemption, they're not going to remain under God's wrath. Forever, they're going to they're going to be effectually called to salvation because they've been predestined before the foundation of the world. They're going to they're going to come to faith. But this whole idea of Romans eight denying the golden chain, denying unconditional election, uh, that serves as the foundation and basis for a lot of his conclusions regarding the atonement. Now, let me just give you a quote from D. A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson in The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, which I think is a a great little book. Uh, Let me give you a quote from Dr. Carson. Quote, If Christ died for all people with exactly the same intent as measured on any axis, then it is surely impossible to avoid the conclusion that the ultimate distinguishing mark between those who are saved and those who are not is their own decision, their own will. That is surely ground for boasting. This argument does not charge the Arminian with no understanding of grace. After all, the Arminian believes that the cross is the ground of the Christian's acceptance before God. The choice to believe is not in any sense the ground. Still, this view of grace surely requires the conclusion that the ultimate distinction between the believer and the unbeliever lies finally in the human beings themselves. So, assertion number one from Dr. David Allen is a denial of God's particular love, God's electing love, and that it has to be omnibenevolent for all people equally. And so God, for God to truly be loving, it has to be an equal, omnibenevolent love dispensed towards all people um, equally. All right, let's look at his assertion number two. This is an interesting one. He, here, here, let me just state it. God's love is evaluative based upon foreseen faith and subjective conditioned upon a reciprocal response. In other words, 
he's teaching almost a conditional election type of, I guess, schematic here of how God chooses sinners. But it's an evaluative love. It's a subjective love. It's a, it's a conditional love. It's a reciprocal love. Uh, let me give you a quote of his from page 781. Quote, Scripture teaches that God universally seeks a relationship of reciprocal love, but he also enters into a particular relationship only with those who respond appropriately to his love. Okay, so God is universally seeking reciprocal love. And once you reciprocate that love, once you respond back in that love, then God enters into a particular relationship with you. Now, this prevents... Universalism, obviously, David Allen's not a universalist. He's a good Southern Baptist, so he's not going to teach universalism. But what this really shows is God is trying really hard to save people because he's really hoping that his love will not be um, spurned. It will be requited love. And so he must be eternally frustrated because so many people are using their free will not to reciprocate this love. In other words, humans become the initiating factor that determines if God's going to show particularity. And so it's conditional. And instead of a particular and unconditional election by God coming before the foundation of the world to the elect, God seeks people to love and then responds when they do love Him back in this reciprocal type of love. Um, He also says... um, an interesting statement about Romans 9 where he says that uh, Jacob and Esau, Esau, God's love of them was based upon their actions. God evaluated their actions, which goes against totally against what Romans chapter 9 says, that before they were born or did anything good or bad, God's election stood. Um, But listen to this quote on page 781. Quote, Many passages in the canon explicitly present God's call and election as conditional on response. Yet no passage clearly depicts either God's call or election as unilaterally effective. There is no example in Scripture of causally determined love. Now that's a, that's a powerful statement. That there's no passage that clearly depicts God's call or election as unilaterally effective. So in that statement right now, he's denying God's unconditional election and God's sovereign regeneration or effectual calling of being effective. So God can call, God can elect, and that not be effective. Basically what he's saying there, God can sovereignly elect, or not necessarily sovereignly, but God can elect and God can call, but God can't cause or determine or effect, effectuate that's a word, um, actuate or, or affect any response. He's totally up to the free will of, of humans. He says no passage depicts this. Well, let's just look at a few passages. John 6, 37 through 44, it sounds pretty effective to me, uh, pretty causally determined to me, God's call and election. These are the words of Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That sounds effective. And whoever believes, or whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That sounds pretty effective. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about Him, saying, Because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Uh, Just the words of Jesus there. No one can come unless God sovereignly draws or calls. And when God does that, it's effective. They will be raised up on the last day. They will come. There, There is an effective calling. There is effective salvation. There is an effective election. Um, when he says that no passage clearly teaches that, I, I don't even understand what he's saying because you go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All of those types of things. And then Paul goes on to say that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. That sounds effective. God making us alive. That uh, For him to say categorically that there's no passage of Scripture that clearly teaches an effective election or an effective calling is really, really hard to, to understand that he would make such a, such a bold statement like that. Now, this is the one that really, I, I didn't really understand what he meant. It was confusing. Page 783, quote, God loves every individual for conditionally, for the purpose of loving them particularly in a reciprocal love relationship. I honestly have no idea what that means. I do not know when he says for conditionally, F-O-R-E conditionally. God loves every individual for conditionally. I don't know what that means. For the purpose of loving them particularly in a reciprocal love relationship. This sounds almost like basic conditional election that would come from Arminianism. God loves everyone with a general love, for conditionally, and then when they choose to reciprocate that love out of their own free will, then God responds with particular love. Um, again, everything is based upon human response. And so God, God loves every individual for, for conditionally. What are, the, what are the conditions that a sinner has to meet in order for God to love them particularly? It almost sounds like God, I mean, it just sounds to me like Arminian conditional election. That God looks down through the four doors of time, sees who's going to respond, and then when God sees that, he then chooses the person based upon the choice that he sees. Again, page 782. If significant freedom is a necessary condition of love, it is impossible for God to determine that all beings freely love him. Again, that's his premise, that in order for there to be true love, there has to be significant freedom. And how does significant freedom, how how does he define that? Again, everything comes down to this whole idea of God responding to the human choices of individuals and God having to have an omnibenevolent love and loving every single person in the same exact way. Again, ultimately, it's a denial of unconditional election. But one of the things that really bothers me about this is that 
it affects, it deals with the impassibility or the immutability of God. And what do I mean by the impassibility or the immutability of God? Um, our Confession of Faith, the, the Second London Baptist, as well as the Westminster Confession, talks about a God with no passions. What do we mean by this? It, it almost has God in this state of flux where he's responding to what individuals are going to do as opposed to God sovereignly making a decree or decision before the foundation of the world and having all things come to pass according to his ordained plan. Again, I think D.A. Carson, Dr. Carson, is very helpful in this area. Again, from his book, um, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, let me give you a quote from Dr. Carson. Quote, God is impassable in the sense that he sustains no passion. No emotion that makes him vulnerable from the outside, over which he has no control, or which he has not foreseen. God's love does not function exactly like ours. How could it? God's love emanates from an infinite being whose perfections are immutable. God does not, quote, fall in love with the elect. He does not, quote, fall in love with us. He sets his affection on us. He does not predestine us out of some stern whimsy. Rather, in love, he predestines us to be adopted as his sons. And notice what Dr. Carson says. God does not have emotions or passions that somehow make him vulnerable from the outside over which he has no control or which he has not foreseen. What is Dr. Allen's view of God's love? It's a reciprocal love that waits to see how people are going to respond. He loves people for conditionally, and then when they respond in, in reciprocal love, then he enters into a particular relationship with them. Um, this really puts human beings in the driver's seat of how God is going to respond to them. And so uh, God basically reacts based upon the reciprocal love that he gets back. Uh, Theodora Beza, who was John Calvin's a student and successor in Geneva, wrote this, quote, The love that is in God is no passion arising of some good that it apprehends, but it is the very simple essence of God. The cause of that love of His is not in the creatures, as though there were such as could allure God to love them, but it is rather in God, who of Himself is good and pours goodness upon His creatures. Did you hear what Beza is saying there? God simply loves because that's his essence. And in eternity past, he set his love upon the elect. God doesn't sit around and wait to see how people are going to respond to him and then decide he's going to enter into a love relationship with them based upon the human will of a person being the deciding factor of how this all works. And so it's a fundamentally different understanding of how God loves, how God chooses, how God interacts with his creation. In the traditional Southern Baptist view that Dr. David Allen espouses and others, God is um, for conditionally loving people. It's a conditional election. He's, he's hoping that he has reciprocal love. He loves everybody in the same type of way. There's no unconditional election. There's no effectiveness as far as um, an effectual calling. Um, there's no um, sense that God ordains all things, that come to all things that come to pass, and those things will come to pass because God has a sovereign decree. It's almost as if uh, God is, is in heaven waiting around with bated breath 
death to see who's going to choose him, who's going to accept him, who's going to, to love him. And then when, when God sees that or when that love reciprocated, okay, then God decides he's going to enter into a love relationship with that sinner. So those are the first two issues. All right, let's look at number three. And I'm not sure if he would say this, but in reading between the lines, this is kind of what I have, and I may be wrong on this, this is kind of what I've, I've assumed or what I've come to the conclusion. Number three, he subscribes to the governmental view of redemption. And I don't think Dr. Allen would come out and say that because I think he would say he believes in a substitutionary atonement. But as you continue to read his writing, you wonder if he truly believes in a substitutionary atonement the way that we as, as Calvinist or Reformed people would believe in that. Again, a quote from page 786. Limited atonement undermines the well-meant offer of the gospel. We evangelize because God wills all men to be saved and has a made atonement for all men, thus removing the legal barriers that necessitate, necessitate their condemnation. God has removed the legal barriers through the atonement. Now, that is a governmental view of the atonement. Now, let's just stop and talk about a statement for a moment. Um, he says, we evangelize because God wills all men to be saved and has made atonement possible for all men. God, God, the reason we evangelize is because God's made a way possible. God's removed the obstacles. God has done everything that he can do in the sense that the obstacles are removed. But in his view, God's done everything he can do, but still there's the possibility that no one would ever be saved because in earlier statements of his, he says God's election and God's calling is not effective and he does not believe in a limited or particular redemption. And so Christ could have substituted himself on the cross and then nobody come to faith in him uh, because they, they didn't use their free will to do that. So God's removed all the legal barriers. God's done everything that he can up to a point to make it possible, to make it a hypothetical reality for people to come to faith. And that's why they evangelize. Again, this makes the atonement hypothetical. It makes it a potential atonement. It's, it's made for everybody in general. The legal barriers are removed. And then the person with the reciprocal love choice chooses whether they're going to be saved and be the beneficiary of that atonement. Now, we as Calvinists would say, yes, we evangelize because we believe that God loves people. We evangelize because we believe that the cross is the power of God for salvation. But we also would say the reason we evangelize is in obedience to God's revealed will in the Great Commission, and it brings glory to God in both the salvation of sinners and the judgment of, of sinners in this proclama procla proclamation of the gospel. Um, the traditionalist says, well, we, we evangelize because really there's been a provisional atonement that removes barriers but nobody in particular was saved or redeemed on the cross in a literal substitutionary atonement that was intended only for the elect. And so the governmental view of the atonement is really this idea that the legal barriers have been removed. God has done everything necessary to make it possible. Christ's atonement was... Um, a way to, to, to open a way, but, but it wasn't specific in the sense that it accomplished the effective 
atonement of those for whom it was intended, i.e. the elect. Now, J. Kenneth Greider is a leading um, Nazarene scholar and um, in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology um, under Arminianism, he's made a, an interesting statement. So let me read you a quote from this Nazarene Arminian scholar. Quote, A spillover from Calvinism into Arminianism has occurred in recent decades. Thus, many Arminians, whose theology is not very precise, say that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Yet such a view is foreign to Arminianism, which teaches instead that Christ suffered for us. Arminians teach that what Christ did, he did for every person. Therefore, what he did could not have been to pay the penalty, since no one then would ever go into eternal punishment. Arminianism teaches that Christ suffered for everyone so that the Father could forgive the ones who repent and believe. His death is such that all will see that forgiveness is costly and will strive to cease from anarchy in the world that God governs. This view is called the governmental theory of the atonement. Notice what this Arminian is saying. He's saying, listen, if you're going to be a true Arminian, you can't believe that Christ paid the penalty. You can't believe in a little substitutionary atonement because if you do, this Arminian says, if you believe that Christ paid the penalty in his body, then everybody would be saved because the penalty would be paid and thus nobody would ever go into hell because that payment has already been paid. So he understands the argument about substitutionary atonement and limited atonement. That's the, the same argument we make. If Christ literally substituted himself on the cross in the place of every single person, appeased God's wrath, uh, accomplished eternal redemption, did all these things specifically in the place of individual sinners, then those sins are paid for and nobody would go to hell because all the payment has been paid. And so this Arminian realizes that can't be. Um, so we've got to not use that terminology. We don't believe in a substitutionary atonement. We believe God's removed legal barriers. We believe Christ suffered for us. We believe Christ did everything that was necessary to, to make it possible for you to use your free will in reciprocal love to choose Jesus. And then once, that, once you do that, then it activates the atonement in your, in your behalf. Okay? So that's number three. Number four, I'm going to narrow this down to one passage of Scripture, but, it's, it, but this was the, probably the most frustrating thing about the book. Um, with all of the theology and all of the historical um, quotations, here's number four. He provides no positive exegesis for any of the key texts. I mean, he argues against how scholars throughout history have dealt with those texts, but he never, ever provided his own positive and extended exegesis. This is the biggest weakness of the book. I would have ha rather him have one chapter. Instead of dealing, and he addresses at the beginning of the book saying, you know, I'm going to interact with these different people's theologies and their, and their different you know, views and their different um, exegesis. It would have been very beneficial from the very beginning for him to have just one chapter, maybe two, where he takes the key passages that we as Calvinists argue for limited atonement or the ones that he argues against it, and given a long, sustained, positive exegesis of his own to defend what he believes, as opposed to pinning Calvinist against Calvinist and, and four-pointers and Almiraldians against others. Uh, instead of doing that, it would have been very helpful for him to have done his own positive exegesis. But one of the big ones that he talks about, and this is one that a lot of 
um, Arminians and, and those that don't believe in limited atonement argue for universal redemption, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I actually think 2 Corinthians chapter 5 presents a very, very strong case for limited atonement. So let's read this. And maybe you've never dealt with this passage of Scripture, understanding the extent or intent of the atonement. Um, Because when you just read it at first glance, you can understand how uh, the the non-Calvinistic viewpoint may come to light. But then when you begin to study this passage in more detail, you really understand that, wow, this actually gives a stronger case for for a... uh, a limited atonement. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's start in verse 14. Let's just read verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whose, for, whose, for their sake died and was raised. Okay, you got this all language here. One died for all. Okay, you look at that and say, one died for all, he died for all, all means all, all the time. Well, if you just look at that at first glance, you can say, okay, well, Jesus must have died for all. The all there must mean every single person who's ever lived, man, woman, boy, girl, all people without exception. That's what the all must be there. But if you look at the context and you look at the argument that Paul is making, and you look at the federal headship of Christ and the federal headship of Adam, and you look at the, the Greek preposition huper, which means in the place of. One has died for all. Huper. In the stead. As a substitution. The, the issue here is... One died for all, therefore all have died. The idea here is that Jesus died in the place, who pair, Greek preposition, or as a substitute, only for those who have died and who live. In that context of that, that passage of Scripture. So, can this be said of all people? That all people have spiritually died with Christ and all people have been spiritually raised to Christ. Can this be said of all people? No. Jesus, as the federal head of the elect, came and died and rose again as a substitute in behalf of the elect, not the entire world. Because if you take Paul's argument here that all died and all live, and you take the substitutionary language there, then that's basically saying, or it's going to lead to universalism. That every single person's died in Christ spiritually. Every single person has been raised in Christ. So the all there is limiting. Just because you see an all in your English translation, it doesn't necessarily mean all people without exception. Look at the context. All died. All were raised, and whose sake Christ 
died and was raised. There's substitutionary language. This is very similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him, like his. This is union with Christ. It's the whole idea that, and I don't understand the full implications of how this happened spiritually, but when Christ died on the cross and rose again, somehow spiritually, those who were his, the elect, were somehow there with him, experiencing that same reality. Because he is their federal head, because he came in the flesh in the incarnation to represent only those that the Father had given to him, when Jesus died on the cross, we all died. All the elect died with him spiritually there. When he was raised again, we all spiritually rose. Now, we weren't physically there on the cross. Some of us weren't even born yet. And so spiritually, because of the covenant of redemption and how unconditional election works and all these things work together, uh, Paul makes a very strong argument that there's a spiritual death and a spiritual resurrection that is linked to the physical death and physical resurrection of Christ. And that can't be for all people. Not all people are spiritually raised to new life. Not all people die spiritually in Christ and are raised again into this new life. That, that can't be said of all people. And Paul links this language to the atonement and to the resurrection, limiting the, the scope of what's happening there. A.T. Robertson, uh, the famous uh, from Southern Seminary back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, word pictures in the New Testament, commenting on this passage, says this, the logical conclusion, the one died for all, and so all died when he did, all the spiritual death possible for those for whom Christ died. So he's linking it again to a limitation to those whom Christ represented. Now, George Smeaton has written in a very excellent book from the late 1800s. He was a Scottish pastor, The Apostles' Doctrine of the Atonement. As a matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon um, loved the writings of George Smeaton and, and referred to it a lot. And so George Smeaton's book, he goes through every single passage of Scripture that deals with the atonement and gives a very extended exegesis. And listen to what George Smeaton says about this passage of Scripture in his book, The Apostles' Doctrine of the Atonement. Quote, For Christ is never said to die for men in any other sense than in the sense of substitution or exchange of places. He really entered into our place, and by doing so incurred our doom and responsibility. And we as truly enter into His place and partake of His merits and reward. And a different mode of viewing the transaction is not to be found in Scripture. So he argues again for this whole idea that based upon the substitutionary language used, that Christ literally did die in our place, and somehow we died with Him, we rose with Him. And so this all language is not universal. It's not all people without exception. It's limited to those who literally died with Christ, those whom He came to represent as their federal head, the, the all is limited by that, that language that Paul is using there, and even by the, the Greek uh, preposition huper, which means in the place of. Um, S. Lewis Johnson uh, said this. Um, he's, he's a pastor out of Dallas. Quote, So if we say Christ died for all, then we have to say, if we want to posit a universal atonement, 
Everybody has died in the death of Christ. We don't want to say that because nowhere in Scripture does it ever say anything like that. For those who are not believers in Christ have not died in Christ's death. Therefore, when he says one died for all, he's talking about the all who died in Christ's death. He's talking about all believers. It's clear. One died for all believers. Therefore, all believers died. So when it talks about all, the reason I'm bringing this up is because sometimes when you hear people say, Jesus died for all and all means all. Well, yes, but you have to understand the context of the all. What's the argument that Paul is making? What's the semantic range of the wording that's used there? How does it all fit together contextually? And so if you start thinking deeply about these things, all doesn't mean all people without exception. It's limited to, in that particular passage of Scripture, those who spiritually died with Christ and rose again. Now, from now, let, let's keep reading. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, here's another question you've got to ask. Okay, people look at this and say, okay, God was, God was reconciling the whole world to himself. Therefore, Christ must have died for the whole world. Now, this is just in the context of what we just looked at. The all being limited to a specific group of people who died with Christ and rose spiritually with Christ. And that's not all people with that exception. So when the world is used here, does the world mean every single person who ever lived? If that's the case, what was God doing? God was reconciling the world. If God reconciled the entire world, taken to its logical conclusion, that's universal reconciliation. That's the entire world being saved, because if the entire world is reconciled to God, nobody's going to hell. But notice what Paul says. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Not imputing. The non-imputation of sins. Now that's where we have to dive a little bit deeper into this text. If God did not impute or did not count the trespasses of the world against them, then the world is, in a sense, not guilty. And that can't be so because that means there's going to be nobody in hell. So how can God not count or impute trespasses against the entire world? If that were true, then according to God's justice and imputation, the entire world would have God's wrath removed and be reconciled to God. So the word world there can't mean every single person without exception because if, if that's true, then every single person in the world wouldn't have their sins imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to them. They would be justified. And, and, and that's, we know the rest of the Bible teaches that's not true. So it's, it's got to be an actual imputation or not. I mean, if it's an actual non-imputation of sins, then they can't be held guilty. They can't be in hell because that payment's already been counted to their account. It can't be held against them. 
And so again, just because you see God reconciled the world, does that mean every single person who ever lived? Because if that's the the case, and you take that non-imputation, not counting their sins against them language there, then that leads you to universalism. Okay, let's go down to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, obviously, uh, this is the appeal of the gospel. Um, And Paul is imploring people to be reconciled to God. But the question is, who's the audience? Who needs to be reconciled? Um, there's a lot of arguments out there from different scholars. Some people say it's the entire world that needs to be reconciled. Um, there were some in the church in Corinth that were against Paul's leadership. It's them particularly that need to be reconciled. Uh, I, I think you can make a case for all of those, but let's just, let's just say this. Paul does not know the identity of the elect any more than we do. So when he goes into an audience, when he goes to Corinth or he goes to Ephesus or he goes to, to Galatia or Philippi or wherever he goes, he's going to see sinners in front of him. He doesn't know the identity of elect. In an evangelistic context, he's going to urge every sinner in the world, any sinner before him, to have faith in Christ. Just like any good pastor would, when you stand before people and you preach the gospel, you don't know who the elect are, so you indiscriminately preach the gospel to every person there. But we know something. We know that in our general call of the gospel that goes out, there's going to be an effectual call. God has ordained those who will be saved. God does have an elect people. God will predestine or has predestined. God will call them. They will have faith. They will be justified. And so we we know that that's going to happen because of God's decree. So when we urge sinners to be reconciled to God, we know that those who are elect will be reconciled to God. Because God will make sure it happens. And so, I don't know here if Paul is offering a universal atonement. I think he's gone to great lengths to actually present a limited atonement that actually imputes specific sins to Christ and where specific people actually died with Christ and were raised with Him as Christ is their federal head. Again, you've got that pair language. Again, um, the huper means in the place of. Does Jesus die in the place of all people? Does Jesus impute his righteousness to all people? Uh, when Paul there says he, he was made sin, this is imputation language. Not simply abstract sins, but Jesus literally had the specific guilt and sins of his people imputed to him. Uh, listen to what George Smeaton says again. Quote, He was, as it were, the embodiment of sin or incorporated guilt. And we may well affirm that never was so much sin accumulated upon a single head. He was not made sin in a vague and definite abstract way, but the very sin of which we are painfully conscious in the moment of conviction, that is, our own sins of nature and life, were laid on him or transferred from our head to his. Okay, so here's the logic of the doctrine of imputation. This imputation language. And I think this is the argument that Paul's making in this text. From Adam as our federal head, we have original sin and guilt imputed to us. That includes all people. 
So all people, the all there does mean all people because all people are fallen in Adam. Adam is the federal head of the entire human race. Both those who are Christian and non-Christian, every single human being is fallen in Adam. Adam is the federal head of all people without exception. Every single person is born guilty. Every single person has the guilt and sin of Adam imputed to them so that when they are born, they're conceived in sin. Every single person has original sin. That is universal. Okay? But then it gets specific. Christ is the federal head, not of the entire world, but all those to whom the Father has given to him. He's the federal head of the elect. So when Christ died on the cross as our federal head, all of the sins of his people were imputed to his account in the sense that he literally bore the specific sins of his people. Not just vague sin, not just generic sins out there, but literally there was the actual literal sins of you and me who are the elect actually imputed to Christ to where he actually bore those literal sins in his body. Okay? Then, when we trust Christ for salvation and justification, His righteousness is imputed to us through faith. And so the imputed righteousness of Christ only comes by faith, and only of the elect will exercise faith. When Christ died on the cross, only the sins of His people were imputed to Him on the cross. And so this imputation language is limited to only Christ's people. Adamic guilt, the guilt from Adam is imputed to everyone, while only the sins of the elect are imputed to Christ, and only the elect will have Christ's righteousness imputed to them by faith. Again, this goes back to the golden chain of redemption. In other words, can it be possible for a person whose sins were imputed to Christ, i.e., Christ literally bore those sins, would that person not in time come to have faith and have the imputed righteousness of Christ to their account? You see, if Christ's death was universal in scope, if it was universal in intent, it was a literal substitutionary atonement for every single person, then what happens to those whose sins were imputed to Christ? What, what happens if the non-elects or those that go to hell, sins were actually imputed to Christ? Those that will never repent and believe. Does not the grammar and the context of federal headship lead us to believe that Christ only dies for those whom he represents and theirs and theirs only? Only their sins are imputed to Christ. Only they will have the righteousness imputed to them by faith. And again, faith is a gift to the elect. Go back to the golden chain. Those who are predestined, when they're called, they'll be regenerated. They'll be given faith. They will be justified. Will there be anybody justified who's not been predestined and called? Will there be any, Again, the whole golden chain comes together. So the atonement can be said to have been made only for those who were predestined, called, justified, namely a limitation given only to the elect. Now, the reason I deal with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is because um, that's a passage that a lot of universal redemption people will use to prove um, universal atonement, but I think Paul's language there limits it, and that's why I wanted to show you that. Now, number five, this is the, uh, the big one from David Allen. He argues what he calls the negative inference fallacy. The negative inference fallacy, um, which relates, I think, also to the covenant of redemption. He, he, doesn't, he denies the covenant of redemption. He die, denies unconditional election. Um, he, he denies a lot of these key reformed teachings that we believe. But what is the negative inference fallacy? 
Okay, let me, let me state it for you. This is, this is David Allen's negative inference fallacy. One cannot infer a negative, i.e., Christ did not die for group A, from a bare positive statement, Christ did die for group B. Okay? The negative inference is just because the Bible says Christ died for the sheep doesn't necessarily infer that he didn't die for the non-sheep. Or just because Christ died for the church doesn't mean that he didn't die for everybody else that's not part of the church. Uh, I wonder how this is logically consistent with texts that teach a particularity and how this would not lead to universalism. I think the, just the way that language is meant to be used in the Bible, the exclusive language by its very nature, limits the scope to a particular people. Why? You don't really need a negative inference fallacy because the purpose of making it limited is to make it limited. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this with some text. Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay. Positive, bare statement. Jesus obtained the church of God, the flock, with his own blood. Okay, that's what Paul says. Now, the negative inference fallacy would have to make Paul give a caveat. Oh, by the way, Jesus not only bought the church, but those outside the church as well. But on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't have to do that because the language itself is limited in scope. You don't have to have a negative inference fallacy. When, when Paul says Christ died for the church, he's making limited language there to make a distinction between the church and, and those that aren't part of the church. Um, and so I think a lot of times this negative inference fallacy breaks down just because I think limited language is meant to be limited. Romans 8, 30-34. Those, again, the golden chain, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Ah, by, we got an all there. He gave him, Jesus gave himself up for all. Who's the all? That must be all people without exception. All people that's ever lived. It's in the context of the golden chain. And he uses language there. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Only the elect, only those who've been justified, only those who are predestined, called, justified, glorified, only those for whom Christ is interceding, those are the ones who he gave himself up for. Those are the all there. So in this passage, the all again is limited by context. And the negative inference fallacy is not even needed because Paul actually limits the language. It would be foolish for Paul to say, well, you know, Jesus actually you know, also died for the non-elect. He died for those that aren't going to be justified. He died for those that um, Christ, you know, is not going to ever intercede for. Um, why would he go to great pains showing who the elect are and making that limited language if that's not what he meant? The negative inference fallacy would have Paul saying, oh yeah, we know Christ died, did all these things for the elect, but, you know, he did them for the non-elect as well. Again, the language itself lends itself to limitation. How about Ephesians 5, 25 through 27? 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing in the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, this is restrictive language. It's between a husband and a wife. That's the purpose. It's restrictive language. Christ loved the church. He's sanctifying the church. He's cleansing the church. He's presenting the church to himself blameless on the final day. Paul doesn't have to say, oh yeah, Jesus didn't die just for the church. Jesus didn't die just for the bride. He also died for the prostitute of Babylon. He's making her pure as well. Uh, the, the exclusive restrictive language between a husband and wife are, are the context for Paul's statements here. How about Hebrews 9.15? Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that the ones who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant for those who are called. Does that include everybody? Is everybody called? If so, go back to the golden chain. Then everybody's going to be justified. Everybody's going to be glorified. That's going to lead to universal salvation. Hebrews 10.14, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, there's a limitation here in the atonement. Those who are being sanctified. I think common use of language in context, you don't need a negative inference fallacy because the purpose of the limitating language is to be that, just that, to limit for example, I married my wife is a bare statement of fact. It's limiting due to the language. I married my wife. Because we understand marriage to be between one man and one woman. The negative inference would say just because you married your wife doesn't mean that you married other women as well. Okay. I love my wife. Bare statement. Negative inference fallacy? That doesn't mean that you don't love other women as well. But does that make any sense when you talk about the limiting language between a husband and wife? Think about adoption for a moment. I adopted two children from the orphanage. Bare statement. But that doesn't mean that I did not adopt everyone else. The nature of adoption is limited. This language is limited. And so I think that the negative inference fallacy really breaks down because I think the, the, the language of the sheep, the elect... That's limiting language to a specific people. And the negative inference fallacy is, well, just because other people aren't mentioned in that doesn't mean that those people weren't, weren't died for uh, as well. Well, if Paul meant that, if Paul wanted to include everybody, then why didn't he use universal language? He uses limiting language because that was in his intent under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, I didn't get to number six, which is the whole idea of really dealing with John Owen. Uh, he, he, number six, he says that John Owen confuses the commercial understanding of sin as debt with a penal satisfaction for sin. Um, and he deals with a lot of the arguments of, of John Owen. And um, just for the sake of time, I don't think I'm going to go into that. You can go, if you have the book, you can go read his interaction with, with John Owen. Uh, basically, bottom line is I think it ends up being a denial of substitutionary atonement. So let me just bring some closure to this. Um, the book was informative. The book was good in the sense that it really showed some scholarly treatment. I, I do agree that he did a lot of scholarship as far as looking at some historical documents. Um, but I think that he fundamentally comes to this issue with some biases that 
I think, color his understanding. And if I were to encourage him to do anything in a second printing of this book, or maybe on a blog post or something, is that he needs to give a positive, sustained, exegetical assertion, exegetical treatment of key text. Instead of saying, uh, this is what somebody else says and I don't agree with it, that's good, but give, what, give a positive assertion. And I think the, the big issue with the traditionalist movement, and in a lot of conversations I've had with others through Facebook and through Twitter and through email and stuff that, are, that interact with other traditionalists, is that they so much speak about what they're against and how they're not Calvinists and how, you know, what, what, they're, what they're against that they never really give a positive, sustained, coherent exegetical treatment of key texts. Now that may be an unfair statement that some people may have issue with. As I just said, they don't give a clear, concise, cogent, cohesive, exegetical, positive treatment of key exegetical text. Now there may be some that do. I'm not going to make a blanket statement, but I think it would help the traditionalist to give clear assertions positive exegetical statements of what they believe that are coherent. I think the reason why more people are coming to embrace the doctrines of grace and Calvinism and Reformed theology is because they're seeing the cohesive nature of Reformed theology. They're seeing the exegetical airtightness of Reformed theology. They're seeing how exegetically, systematically, hermeneutically, consistently, it just provides a more robust and a more cohesive and a more positive understanding of Scripture. Now, I'm sure a traditionalist will say that we have the same beliefs about our views as well, and that's why there's a difference. And so the best thing that can happen is for the traditionalist to put out positive, extended, long exegetical treatments and let us interact with those, uh, because we as Calvinists are doing it all the time. Almost every commentary out there is from a more Reformed um, perspective, and so uh, there's no shortage of Reformed exegesis out there. I think the traditionalists need to get some more positive exegesis. That would be helpful to put the two things side by side so they can be weighed and see which is the best um, interpretation of Scripture um, exegetically. Well, I do appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. I hopefully will be having some more podcasts here in the near future as I've gotten more time freed up. Uh, if you have a topic you'd like for me to address in the near future, you can go to seancole.net and you can find my contact information there. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook. You can um, follow me on Twitter. Uh, there's just many different ways you can get a hold of me. But I do appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.